Okay, now that we're done talking about exactly when the second coming is coming, we'll get back to our topic. Okay. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Matthew says. And then, and then farther on in the discussion, he's then going to say, Therefore, you will be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's, the, of course, the Weymouth version. Now, Luke is going to take those two pieces. He's going to say, let's reconstitute them a little bit and take this where I want it to go. So now what we get is, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Which, uh, by the way, makes so much sense to me. I'm going to, I'm going to pop this ahead. Uh, that, that makes perfect sense when you think about uh, the Holy of Holies and that we have the Ark of the Covenant with uh, uh, Aaron's rod, which we're going to talk a lot about next week, um, and, and uh, the stone tablets and everything. And then it's covered by the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is supposed to be what? It's the throne of God. If he's going to come to his house, this is where he sits. And isn't it interesting that he sits on a mercy seat surrounded by cherubim. Uh, so is it possible that part of what we're saying is that the highest form of God's perfection would be his mercy? Would that make sense? Uh, and and that, that's, that's really what, what, what I've really come to believe. So... So fascinating then that we would then say, as Luke, as Luke is saying, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And then he's taking some pieces that are in Matthew's sermon. He's going to put them together because he wants to really drive this point home. Uh, and he's going to say, be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Do not judge that she may be judged. And condemn not that you may not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Okay? Now, why are these so important, do you think? Why, enough that he's saying, I'm going to, anytime that something is repeated and he's continuing to repeat it, what is it that he's basically trying to say here? I think he's saying, if you want to be happy, these are the things you should do. Uh, I think that when he uses the word perfect there, that means well and healthy. And, uh, and what, what is perfect mercy but perfect justice? Yes. So all of those concepts are just swirled around. I think so. Okay. What else? Yeah. Don't you think you're trying to move beyond Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah, you know. I, I, I tried to find the, the clip uh, with, with Tevye saying, great, an eye for an eye, two for two, yeah, one day right. the whole world will be blind and two. <laughs> <laughs> Present. Yeah, yeah, and the, there was... And, and we're taking that relationship, and then what are we? What's he saying that we're supposed to do with that relationship? 
extend that elsewhere, okay? Um, and and so that that in a sense, isn't he saying, uh, how do you make sure that you don't get judged? Don't judge other people. So our my relationship here is partly developed, partly dependent on what? My relationship here, okay? If I'm wanting mercy here, I should be doing what? Merciful here. And in fact, this mercy here is dependent on this one here, and this one here is dependent on this one here. And he's tying these together. Not like, well, be merciful because you'll be happy and you'll like it. <laughs> um, let, 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 me, let me drive it. And it comes actually out of the Book of Mormon. Uh, in the Book of Mormon, Alma is going to talk a lot about the doctrine of restoration. We always kind of like that, you know, that, it, that everything will be restored. Uh, and, you know, if, you, if your hair challenged, you really look forward to the restoration of your hair uh, and all that. that. That our spirit and our body will, will be reunited to its perfect frame. And we miss, I think, one of the most powerful aspects of that that, and it's in Alma 41, where he's going to say, look, Therefore, my son, see that you are merciful unto your brethren, deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. And if, the, if you do all these things, you shall receive your reward. And look at what the reward is. The reward is, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. What mercy is being restored to us? Where are we getting the mercy? Whose mercy is it? It's our mercy. It's the restoration of all things. We're getting our body back, but we're also getting our mercy back. He says, you shall have justice restored. Not given, not gifted, restored. Okay. Pay close attention to that word. You shall have mercy restored unto you again. You shall have justice restored to you again. You shall have righteous judgment restored unto you again. You shall have good rewarded unto you again. Now, let me ask, why, is, why does the Lord have it set up this way? Why, why is our mercy with God tied to our mercy to us? Kind of a nice concept, so it'll be good. Yeah. Why? The, the only way that they'll be pro progressive. Why? Uh, you're right. Yes. Okay. So that as we become more Christ-like, we become more merciful. Okay. We become more pure in heart too, because we are not judging or seeing from. We're saying we are as much as we can for what it is. Yeah? Yeah? Okay? Yeah? <laughs> you say could it be restored even from our free moral life? Could very well be. That, that's an interesting thought. I thought that. Yeah. 
Well, and, and could we take that one? We are beloved. We feel his love. Again, we're in that covenant relationship with him. We feel his love here. And then the natural extension of that is the love that we extend to others. And he's saying, and in fact, this love here is what's going to help generate this. The, the two are forever linked. Well, that's five concepts. Yeah. The next Yes, isn't that great? So there is a link. It isn't like it, it isn't like we're going to be merciful because we get extra brownie points and that will help us make it to the celestial kingdom. It's like this is part and parcel of when we talk in a few weeks about uh, well, in fact, we're talking about this in a second here about thy kingdom come. That they weren't waiting for heaven to start doing these things. They're saying this is now. Heaven is just kind of going to be extension of what we're doing here. That's what the original church, the way was, that's what they were doing. And that's certainly what Paul, we're going to talk about a lot, a lot this fall, about how Paul was establishing heaven here. They weren't waiting. And that mercy here was part of becoming and preparing. Okay? So, I just, it, it's, it's, this is so tightly woven together that, that it makes sense to me that in, in the Lord's Prayer, he's starting to talk about the fact that I, I need you to be merciful uh, because we're creating something today, this week, right here in front of us, and it involves mercy. Okay? Alright. So as part of that then, uh, we're gonna, let, let's take a look about this prayer and in what form they were actually uh, praying and in what form the Savior was actually altering uh, what it was that, that they were doing. Okay? Uh, the fallout, the teflon, is the prayer, or the teflon, are going to be those, those uh, actual uh, implements of, of how they pray. Now, it is interesting, I, I think, that until the Babylonian exile, all Jews had composed their own prayers. But thereafter, the sages of the great assembly, I'm taking this out of the Jewish encyclopedia, but thereafter, the sages of the great assembly and the early temple period composed the main portion of a prayer liturgy. Now, let's stop for a second. It's kind of an un unknown, unused word in our theology. What's a liturgy? It's a what? Work? What else? If I walk into if I walk into a Presbyterian church, can I find a prayer liturgy? Yes. If I walk into a Catholic church, am I going to find the prayer liturgy? So what is that? It's a written prayer. That's right. A liturgy is something. It's written this way, and you do it this way every time. Yeah, it's done by repetition over and over, and you read it, and we always do it the same way. Our liturgy is pretty short. Our Mormon liturgy is pretty quick. It's at the sacrament table. Okay? Uh, there are parts of the temple, baptismal prayer, but we have very few liturgies. Yeah. Well, the next one we have is temple baptism. Yeah. 
Yeah, that there are certain things that need to be done, but isn't it interesting that even in temple dedication, that when President Nelson dedicated the Rome temple this weekend, he got to write his own prayer. In other words, it, the, the form of it was there, but the actual liturgy, the actual word-by-word -word kind of thing, as it is with the Catholic Mass, the Catholic Mass has always said and done the same thing, right? In the same order. Okay? Mm -hmm. We were never taught to have a personal relationship with them. Right. But, but if you've got a liturgy, then the sages of the great assembly know what it is. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a great moment from the, uh, uh, from the, uh, the old movie Patton. Uh, with George C. Scott, his old movie, you know, where they've got, they've got to go in and rescue the people during the during the, uh, the bulge, Battle of the Bulge. And they, they need air cover uh, from, from US and Allied troops to help attack the German forces. And so he need, but it's been snowing for days. They're frozen up there in the, uh, in the forest up there. And so you have that little scene, it's a true story actually, that Patton then goes to the, to the, the battalion chaplain and he says, write a prayer. <laughs> I need a prayer for good weather so that we can attack the Germans. Because if it's snowing, we're going to lose. But if I've got air cover, they can come in and bomb the positions and we can, and we can win. Uh, and it's a true story that the, the chaplain writes a prayer that, uh, that Patton is able to then read the prayer, read it through, and, and it worked. And then he said, uh, to the effect, I want to go ahead. You all right? Yeah. Okay. In, in, a, in effect, uh, I want to keep this guy close. He's close to God. You, you know, we're going we're gonna to have these written prayers, and it works. Well, there's a sense in the liturgy of saying, <clears throat> the highest form is the, the prayer that has been created for you, and you just read it. Uh, now, what uh, the Savior's going to do when they're saying, well, what are we going to do about prayers? He's going to say, pray this way, and it's going to change. But he makes a really, really, really important change in this thing that sometimes we miss. Pretty critical, okay? Uh, now, we go back to the Old Testament. Daniel, when he knew that a writ had been inscribed, um, came to his house where there were open windows in the upper chamber opposite Jerusalem. He's praying with his face towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he kneeled on his knees and prayed and offered thanks before his God, just as he had done prior. So there was a tradition that they were praying three times a day with the face towards Jerusalem. Now, if that's just something they did during the exile while they're in Babylon, <laughs> If, if they were praying three times a day towards the temple prior to the exile, we don't know. We just simply know from here that it seems like they were praying three times a day. He probably wasn't just making that. Yeah. Sure. Interesting. And Mary Lee Hanks quoted 
there was. Uh, it, it, it is also, I'll just mention, uh, uh, Joseph, when they were building the Nauvoo Temple, uh, Joseph was, was uh, bringing a group of people through kind of the half-done temple. Uh, one of them was uh, Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, uh, who would, and, and, and she recorded in his journal that as they're walking through kind of the, the, un, the, 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 the temple under construction, he turned to the little group there and he said, you do not know how to pray. But when the temple is built to the capstone, you will know how to pray. And then he said, we have to become acquainted with people like Daniel who pray three times a day with their face towards the temple. So there is this tradition that that was part of facing. And by the way, what other religion prays with their face towards holiness? Islam. Islam. Yeah, yeah. We're going to pray with every day towards Mecca. Okay? Uh, in fact, when you, when you go to the hotel room in, in Jordan, they will have even the, the, the prayer direction. There was a big thing on our TV, and it's like, the prayers go this way. From this spot, in this room, you're going that direction. Okay, at least we'll know what direction we're praying. Okay? There's a story. The United States gave a bunch of money to Iran back in the 60s, I think. And, and some of that money was used to build a great big called apartment building. And all of the bathrooms were on the side of the units that was facing towards uh, Mecca. And so no one would move there and move there except the one. Because the bathrooms were yeah. facing the direction. Right. All right. Let's just take a second. Since, since the Savior is going to make some changes to the prayer, I, I need you to see what it is that he's, that he's changing. Okay. Uh, 
All right, and then the other one, of course, is that uh, you've got to be able to have your tallit that will, will, that will be uh, tied with 613 knots uh, so that when you're going to go ahead and pray, you're ready to, to pray that you're able to cover like that. Okay. Uh, so this is my version of that. And then, can I tell about yours? No. So here's a, another much more uh, much more elaborate, beautiful. Uh, okay. So let, let's let's learn about these. Yes, only if you're Jewish. Uh, although, if uh, these days, depending on the uh, synagogue, uh, like for instance, I went to a, a Jewish wedding, and we were able to. Oh well, well, yeah, they're the force. Uh, and the more orthodox you are, you may wear it all the time underneath the, the hat. It, it just, it's, again, it changes depending on the synagogue. Okay, so let's. Uh, so you get that that sense then of the uh, prayer shawl, the tallit. Um, by the way, it is, as you're looking at that, look at the, uh, the tassels on that, because we believe that that's the hand of the garment that the woman with the issue of blood was reaching out to touch. Uh, yeah, that exact part of the tweet. Okay, so let's find out about the tweet. We're, we're going there, we'll go to the flat region. certain objects that help direct the, the devotion. Okay? Now, that said then, uh, you're asking about the little boxes. The, the one on the head and then the one on, on the arm. Well, uh, let, me let me have a guy explain it to you. Okay? He's actually at the, at the Western Wall. Hi, my name is Julie. I work over here. 
approaches to the commander of the morning with killing. One on the arm, one on the head. As it says in the Bible, and you shall bind them on your arm as a sign, and it should be reminded between your eyes. In English, it's spelled, in Hebrew, it's called Tefillin, T-E-F-I-L-L-I-N. In English, we call it phylacteries. So, what is part of the heart makes it a heart, which is the feelings, the mind, the intellect. We bind our feelings in our mind to realize everything is from God. Whether it's our great feelings, or everything comes from God. So, we might turn around and say, I might be a great professor, I'm going to talk, I'd be very smart. Doesn't mean that I know how to express my intellect. And the same thing with feelings, our feelings are always expressed. People have good feelings, they, they see an old person shrugging their backs, and they say I should help them, but I'm late for my meeting. So not necessarily that they stop and utilize their feelings. So the idea is we want to align our mind to control our feelings, we bring our feelings into our hands, into action, into to the doing. That we should express our mind and feelings in action by helping the person or expressing our intellect. Now I'm going to what's the little made of The feeling of made of a piece of leather, a piece of iron cow, which is taken uh, uh, with the uh, pressing and drying, etc. A long process. Until it becomes, this piece of leather becomes one box. As you can see, it's one piece of leather, except for two fillers over here, that just fill it so when it's closed, it will be straight. But the actual box at the bottom part is one part, one, bit, one, one unit. Now, there's two to fill in, one, like I said, for the hand, and one for the head. They are both the same type of box, just when they're pressed, this one's split into four little compartments. One, two, three, four. Whereas the hand one is one box. Just a roll on quite a long, long thing. Okay? Uh, so again, along with the prayer liturgy, now you're getting the objects that are able to. So, so as, as you're as you're watching all those, what, what's your reaction to that? Come, what's your response? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the 613 laws of the of the Torah. Okay, 600. So there's a little knot for each law, so you're going to remember all every one of the laws. Yeah, Joe. Hasidic Jews are great. Yeah, that's just we're not we're not cutting our hair, you know. We're we're just Latin. It just sets us apart. Yeah. I think it's wonderful how they get their mind and their feelings, and then they put them in action. Right. It's like we are taught to minister and help others in line with God. What's interesting about this, uh, when you look at these specific things that they have, uh, part of it is the fact that there were there were uh, laws and commandments about that were given spiritually, like you're going to hold things in your heart, or you're going to hold things up here, and they became literal. So we're going to bind ourselves with something literal which helps us to remember, which is what the Law of Moses was about anyway. It was about taking spiritual things and making them literal in a way that they couldn't forget. I think of temple ordinances. Yeah. Right. Similar type. But it's kept very... That's right. The things that we wear in, in, the, uh, in the temple are kind of symbolic of that. And we're trying to make sure that we understand the symbolism here. 
but there's still something that points our minds towards what we're trying to do. Okay, um, and I know that when I was when I was buying mine, it's like there were a little bit cheaper going into their temple and going, I want to buy one of these things, and I'm thinking, well, that would be weird, somebody, because we're not going to come into the temple and like let's just buy the temple packet, you know. But for them, it doesn't have the same level of sanctity, but it does have the level of focus, and you need to have these to be able to pray. Did it ever have that level? I don't think it did, but it, it's just the direction is, is going to keep us, and a lot of the Law of Moses is very much that way. It, it's very literal, but it doesn't have the significance that we would put, for instance, on that. Okay? Yeah. I think I read an article about There you go. Well, for instance, for instance, I noticed as I was as I was just kind of reviewing some of this, where they're talking about we pray three times a day: one for Abraham, one for Isaac, one for Jacob. You know, and I think in some cases they just say we're trying to remember, we're putting added significance on things. Even if that was, we don't know if that was the original belief, but that's certainly where we are now, okay? So, you, you kind of get yourself in that space that when Jesus comes in the first century, this is the way that prayers work. Um, and even though a lot of the phylacteries, especially the, the Teflon, were added a little bit later, there's still, we can't find evidence that they weren't using something like this, literal, to kind of focus that, so, okay? All right, so that's it. So here comes the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and, and it's something that he does, and it's right out of the chute, and it ought to change a little bit the way that we look at what he was trying to do with the, with the Jews at the time. And he said unto them, when you pray, say this. Okay, so, so he's got to be able to well, teach us how to pray. Well, you're, you're believing Jews, you know how to pray. And so they were learning from him, no, this is going to be different. We're going to change up the way that we've been doing things. Okay, what will that say? Um, Father, Abba, let your name be holy. Now, we'll stop for a second. These prayers are, even today, are said in what language? Hebrew. The prayer liturgy is in Hebrew. The per, one of the purposes of a, of a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for a 13-year-old uh, teenager is that they're having to be able to read the Torah, which is in Hebrew, so that they can pray uh, El Nehu, uh, Yahudah. Okay, I, I, can, I can actually read the prayers in Hebrew and pronounce them in Hebrew. The prayers were done. The liturgy was in Hebrew. So the very first word, here's how we're gonna, here's what I want you to pray. And he's gonna say, Abba, Father, but that's in Aramaic. It's not in Hebrew. What did he just do? The entire prayer was actually in Aramaic. It was not in Hebrew. What would that suggest? What's the significance of that? Yes. Yes, very much. 
instead of, instead of having to be a prescribed liturgy here, not only am I going to tell you what to pray for, but I'm going to do it in your language. That's pretty significant. He brought it down. To them. Yeah, he made it very, very personal in the language. Again, when, uh, when Tom Wayman is, is translating this, he says, when he's reading the, the words that Jesus spoke in Greek, they weren't high Greek. Sometimes, a lot of Paul, certain sections of that, especially in Ephesus, is in a high Greek writing. Very formalized Greek. This is, even the, the Greek here that Jesus speaks is a very common, and oftentimes he's now using Aramaic, which brings it right to the people. He was speaking the people's language. Okay? So, in a sense, think about what we say in, in Doctrine and Covenants 1, when, when the Savior says, I am God, and I have spoken it. These commandments are of me, and were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to understand it. The oldest documents all go back and confirm, and it's one of the ways that we were able to nail it down. That even in the Vulgate, they're saying, no, he used, he used the word Abba, which is like the, the red flag goes up and goes, oh, wait a minute, he was doing this in Aramaic, he wasn't doing this in Hebrew. There's a whole different word, uh, pater, P-A, like T-I-R, for father that is Hebrew, and he didn't go that. He went, he went Abba, and went, oh, this is common, very common language. Okay, even the Vulgate picked up on that. This was awful. Even though in English they just went, when the King James people said, oh, it's Father, they were always doing it the same. When you go back to the original manuscript, they're going, no, wait a minute, no, it was Aramaic. So he was taking the Orthodox religious part of religion. Right. Now, let me, it's exactly what he was doing. He was, now, in, in our experience, in our own prayer life, what's the lesson here? What's the lesson to us? Yeah. We will talk to him rather than just some prayer that we say is like in the Bible, or the Bible where they had the Ramiamton. You know, everybody said the exact. The Ramiamton was a liturgy. You're exactly right. They were doing it prescribed way, and and what was the reaction of of uh, Alma and the boys when they were listening to the Ramiamton? I would think shocked. Because <laughs> this was not the way to pray. What's the way to pray? Just talking to you. Just talking to God in our own language. Like a, give, a, give him a phone call. Yeah, yeah, it's like having a phone call. Uh, in our own prayers, uh, I mean, uh, we have been seen uh, a lot to say when we pray, we're supposed to use the formal language, the formal language of prayer, which is these and thous and, and arts and stuff like that. And, and the and the brethren have suggested when we pray in public that we should be using. The, the formal language of prayer, which is really the formal language 
of 16th century English King James Version writers. Okay, we've been asked to do that in public meetings, we should. How about in our own private prayers? What's he suggesting to us? We just talk to him personally. Heavenly Father, I'm in trouble. I'm not sure what to do here. I'm really lost. I, 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 I'm at the end of my road. But I appreciate what um, President Nelson said. In, um, Yeah. Because I grew up saying. Oh, sure. Many times over. In, in Catholicism, that is part of the, the you, you know, th think of the uh, the prayer liturgy there in terms of uh, not just mass, but for when when you're doing praying the rosary and, and all that kind of stuff. It's very prescribed. Well, when you go to confession. When you go to confession, it's always the same. There's a very tight liturgy. Yeah. Now, by the way, we may have an informal liturgy in our own prayer life. If we're, if we're kind of kneeling and praying for food or whatever, we may be praying the same prayer all the time. Maybe we're just doing that informally, yes. That if we're going to have a relationship with somebody, it's a relationship that's, that flows. It's a give and take, and recognizing, and hearing, and trading ideas, and suggesting, and working with. That's what we talk about. That's so much of what the Savior did, is that he personalized yes. his Father in heaven. There you go. And he wasn't personalized, and so the, some of the formality that is taken that he could have done at the Hebrew, he could have prayed in Hebrew. But what he does, he brings it down here and he goes, Abba, Father. And this is the same word, by the way, that he will use in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba. And on the cross. It becomes a very daddy, almost kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, okay, she, she says, so wait a minute, there were other people there. Remember, at any given moment, there are people running around. They would speak more Greek in the cities or around Jerusalem. Okay, up in the Galilee, they're going to speak an awful lot of Aramaic, but they would have to know Greek to be able to, to go back and forth with the, with the Romans running around here. You'd have to know Hebrew. Uh, but there are also people coming from all over. Remember, there were an awful lot of, at the time of Jesus, there were about a million in Israel, about a million in Babylon, and about a million in Egypt. So if you've got people coming from Egypt to Passover, and they're showing up, what are they speaking? Probably Egyptian or Greek. And, 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 what, what, and, and what he's saying is, pray in your own language. Uh, I was reading a wonderful little quote by, uh, by a man that had known a, uh, a wonderful Armenian priest. And he said the, the uh, tradition in our, um, among this group of Armenians was that the divine language of heaven was Armenian. And that God has an Armenian monk that works alongside God, and when prayers come up from somebody else, 
that he will translate them into Armenian so that God can answer the prayer. Because Armenian is the language of heaven. Okay. We've always had this discussion about wanting, wa wanting to know what that language of heaven is. Uh, and we, we might just think, well, of course it's English. <laughs> but I don't think Jesus was speaking the King James English to the Nephites. Okay? So again, you get this sense that the prayers come in all languages and, say, and the Savior out of the shoot is trying to say, pray in your own language. And that language may be the, 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 the language of terror and the language of fear or the language of gratitude and it's coming from your heart. Translate it. Don't get caught in formal language when you're really wanting at that moment to struggle. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. We send missionaries to everyone where to teach the people using their first language to have a relationship with God. Yeah, she said she's thinking about how we send missionaries uh, all over the world, but the first thing we have to do is learn their language. Yeah, so that we can teach them how to pray in their own language. Okay. So in this case, it was Aramaic. Okay, so he's going to start off with that, and then he's going to go, uh, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, we have a tendency, and I, and I, I stole this, uh, away in the manger. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children of thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Okay. Now, uh, to that, one of our writers says, the unspoken assumption of this language is that the sole purpose of Christian faith is to fit us for heaven. Such is not the case if we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. The oft-quoted saying of Jesus, My kingdom is not of this world, in the KJV, is better translated, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting for me when I get arrested. Okay, so what is it that he's saying here? Thy kingdom come when? Now, immediately. Not just kind of put up with this world and hang on there and then we're all going, we're waiting to go to heaven and it'll be better there. Thy kingdom come when? Now. Come now. So there is a there is a sense all the way through, uh, and we, we have actually had it when we were talking about the Nauvoo Temple experience, that that those in Nauvoo believed that when they went into the Nauvoo Temple and they knelt across the altar and they sealed they were sealed in the Nauvoo Temple to one another, they had just at that moment created heaven. Heaven was a relationship. And it wasn't a play. 
And in Nauvoo, they said, we just created heaven. We just created another set of uh, gods here right on the altar. Then what do they do? Then they walk out, and what are they supposed to do on a daily basis? The kingdom come. We're here. Start doing what? Be Zion. Yeah, be Zion. Be one part when we get to heaven. No, do it now. Be, be, that, be that family, be that community now. Be it immediately. Uh, now, look at what the church is doing. We're kind of, in a sense, we have like the home teaching liturgy. The visiting teaching liturgy. We were bound to do those things, and when were we supposed to do that? Now, well, under home teaching and visiting teaching, when do we do that? Once a month. Get it done. Did you get that in? Well, okay. I always... I always the same. I always see my family the same time every month, except for uh, New Year's and Halloween, because they're not available on the, those two thirty-firsts. <laughs> we were read this, do this, and we're and we're at this moment going. So what ministry is supposed to look like? How do we do that? I don't know. And we we bring in the you know we're still like. And they're saying, no, do it in their language. Teach them and be that community and be that now. So we're still trying to adjust because we want to make it more formalized for the epic community. Okay? All right. So he's going to say, uh, Abba, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to suggest something here, because I think this is the way that we have read this over and over. Give us this day our daily bread. And then the next line is, and forgive us of our sins. Now, we tended to say that we have two separate ideas, that this may be one way of looking at it. That we're supposed to then give us this day our daily bread, meaning what? Make sure that we have enough to eat in our business. Okay? Give us this day our daily bread. There's one idea. And then the next idea is and forgive us of our sins, right? As we forgive our debtors. which we were just talking about, the tying of our mercy to the Lord's mercy, our forgiveness to His forgiveness. We're tying all of that. But I want to challenge you on this for just a second. What if there was another way to look at these two? Because that little word and may suggest that they're two separate things. There's this and this. Or it could be tying it together. And I'm going to suggest that this because the next one is do this and do this because if this idea right here was do this and this because we forgive everyone who did it to us. Is that a little foggy? Then if that's the setting, then what could be what could be another 
explanation for give us this day our daily bread. From? Ah! So the daily bread may not be bread bread, it may be spiritual food from God. Give us you daily. Give us the grace daily. Okay? Do we have anywhere in the scriptures that might back that one up? Actually, we do. And, and, and lead us not into trial. Well, look at, in the great bread of life, Paul. Remember that he does, uh, and, and we'll talk about this later again, when he, when he does the feeding of the 5,000, and everybody's fed, they've they got the bread that day. They're all, all feeling good. And then, remember, then he's going to get on the ship. He's going to go away. And literally, they go from, from the top of the Galilee. They go, where do you go? I don't know. They all get on their boat. It says they head down to Tiberias, which is below Capernaum. He's not there. Dang. They, then it says they get back on the boat. They go back up to Capernaum. Is Jesus here? No. Well, we're getting hungry. It's getting later in the day. We need our bread. He's not here. Oh, where did he go? We think he went to the other side. Oh, Decapolis? Really? On the other side of it? Okay. It says that everybody then goes across the lake, it says, and they find him over there. Then they go, come on, where's our bread? And then we get this great speech. He's over by Caesarea Philippi. Okay. Where? And, and it's like, we need our bread. And he says, you know what? I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert and died. <laughs> died physically, died spiritually, because they didn't understand the difference. Remember for them ultimately, and it's one of those great lines I think in all the Bible, where, where he, he feeds them manna, they're now getting manna every day, and then what happens? Then they get sick of the manna. They say, give us something else for our soul mold this white bread. Give us something else, please. And they get two things. They get quail, and they get the flying fiery serpents. <laughs> it comes right after that. Yeah, yes, yeah, because even for them, they couldn't recognize that they didn't have to do anything. You just get up in the morning and gather, gather your manna, and you can, you know, you can have manna tortillas and manna, you know, enchiladas if you want, but it's always going to be manna. You didn't have to do diddly squat. Did you, by the way, did, did you see the, uh, there's an article in the paper just uh, the last couple of days where there's a, uh, the man in Mumbai who's suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent? Well, he says, you didn't, uh, you, you didn't ask for my permission for me to be born, and you just born me anyway. Uh, and then he said, and so because of I didn't ask to come here, now you should have to continue to, to pay everything for me. It's like lifetime reparations going forward. Now, it is funny, his parents are both attorneys. 
And their, and their response to that was, oh, he, he, he's showing initiative. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's kind of like that and everything. But here's what I'm saying. I, I was given everything. I'm assuming if you're in Mumbai and your parents are both attorneys, you're probably doing okay. This isn't coming from two peasants' parents. This is coming from somebody who's probably been kind of indulged and stuff like that. And, and now saying, well, I didn't get consent, therefore you should have to take care of me forever. Okay? And by the way, everybody else should be that way too. Okay? So there was that sense if for the, for the children of Israel getting the, the uh, manna, they couldn't separate the manna, the bread, from what? The grace of God. The, the daily blessing that they weren't, they were just receiving it. You know, that's why sometimes when people say, well, what does it mean? What does grace mean? Well, it's like man. You, you just got up and it was there. It, it is given to you. Now, what you will do with it to bless the lives of others, that's your call. But the grace is there. He loves you. Wait again, wait till we get to the shepherd's stuff. Uh, you're going to love Psalm 23. That's how we care anything. Yeah. Give us our daily bread each day and forgive us of our sins. As we repent every day, it, it reinforces the sacrament that we take every Sunday. Huh? Yeah, that we get hints of the sacrament mm -hmm. in the manner. Now, now you're thinking. And, and what are we receiving from the sacrament? Grace. Grace. Blessing. Yeah. His spirit. And all he says, and all you have to do is, is do what? Keep his commandments and remember me. That's all I'm asking. Okay? Now you can see. Okay? This is the bread that comes from heaven, so that who, whoever may eat it will not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread shall live forever. Give us this day our daily grace. Give us this day our daily portion of you. And as I receive that, what am I supposed to do? For, and, and, and I get that forgiveness, I turn around and forgive others. So it, it, it's the same thing, is, is what I'm trying to say to you. It's the same thing. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is man. Now, amazingly enough here, this is where we get the point for the Savior's ministry where people start leaving it. And they go, oh, we're not going to get fed every day. No, they were getting fed every day. They were at the Savior's feet. They just were, they couldn't get past the literalness of I want the bread. So let's take that theme one step farther. And this is Luke. Now, again, I think Luke is, is, is picturing writing to Gentiles. He's picture the the, the uh, sermon on the on the mount going to places that are very rich. Like I, I'm getting I'm getting ready to send this off to New York and Los Angeles and Chicago and Dallas and and it's going to go to a lot of people in some very rich settings. This is going to Northern, Philadelphia, 
Okay? So he sends this out, and here's what he's going to say. And he spoke to them in a parable. Is a blind person able to lead a blind person? Will not both of them fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained is like his teacher. You go, okay. Get that. Okay. So that, let, let, let me clarify it a little bit more fully. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but do not consider the log that is in your own eye? Now, King James, why are, why are you looking at the moat in your brother's eye and, and you have a beam in, in your own? Okay? Now, hold back just a second. How does the world translate this? What does this mean? And, and I, we might have talked about this before, but I want us to try this one. Don't judge, right? So how dare you judge when what? I've got my bigger stuff, right? Yes. Okay. So in essence, what we're trying to say is you have no right to judge other people because you have your own package of stuff. Don't judge. Okay? Not what he meant. Okay? And you've got to look at it in the context of everything else that he's doing with the Lord's Prayer and everything contained in this, in this sermon. Okay? Look at where he goes with this. He's going back to uh, can a blind person lead a blind person? He's back to eyes. Again, he's using the imagery of the eyes. How are you able to say to your brother, let me take the splendor out of your own eye that you do not see the log in your own eye? Okay? That's what we're saying. Well, don't judge. How dare you judge somebody else because you've got bigger stuff in, with you. But we miss the point of the verse. He drives it home in the next verse. What should we say? First of all, hypocrite. Okay, stop. What's a hypocrite? In Greek terminology, what's a hypocrite? The actor. And a hypocrite is somebody who's going to put on a mask, and even though I am this, I'm going to play this. Uh, have any of you seen the video of... Uh, uh, Gandalf, Sir Ian McKellen, and there's a little clip where he's being asked about acting, how to act. And I, I should put up here, and he says, and he says to somebody, well, how do you act? He says, I pretend to be somebody else. <laughs> really? He says, yes. So when Peter Jackson comes to me and says, I want you to play the wizard Gandalf, he says, I said, to Peter, you know I'm not really a wizard. <laughs> and he says, yes, but I want you to pretend to be a wizard. So when they would say action, I would pretend to be a wizard. <laughs> That's called acting. 
<laughs> and the man looked at him and went, I'm not, I'm not sure. He said, okay, let me pay for this way. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, action! Thou shalt not pass! Cut! Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. <laughs> it was Ian here, it was Gandalf here, acting. And then he'd go, and then when they say cut, he's done. He says, that's acting. That's a hypocrite. A hypocrite is one person who's acting like somebody else. Now, the word that I have to look for of hypocrite is actually also dissembler. We have the word dissemble in our Mormon lexicon, in our one of our hands. Say it again. Uh-huh. We have firm foundation and we will never dissemble. What's he saying? We will never be a hypocrite. We will never act like a friend if we're not a friend. That's what, that's what that word, hypocrite. Okay, so what's it mean in this sentence? He says, how are you able to say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your own eye that you do not see the law in your own eye? Hypocrite, one acting as somebody else. Then he says, first take out the law from your own eye and then you will see clearly to do what? Remove the splinter from your brother's eye. <coughs> Is this about judging? No, it's about ministering. You ever had a, a, a something in your eye? You may, and you can't see anything, and it hurts, and it burns, and you're clawing at your face and everything. Can you imagine if somebody comes in and goes, oh, you got something in your eye. I'm so sorry. I'm going to go work on my own stuff. And I'm, no, I'm here. I can't see. I'm not, I, I really can't work on you because I have to go work on my own stuff. That, is that what he's saying? I'm not allowed to touch your stuff because I have my own stuff. Yes. Right. So, so what is the purpose of clearing out the stuff in your own eye? So you can go back tell your 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 friend. That's what he's saying. So that you can serve, remove the things out of your life that prevent you from serving, so that you can go back and serve. It's not about never judge anybody. It's about remove the, the implements in your own life to get in the way of you being able to master your life. Yes. Yeah, nice. Say that again. Thank you. 
Yeah, for those of you who can't hear, he said, have that experience of seeing somebody in the temple that's literally glowing them, and then coming to understand maybe this is how the Savior sees her. Okay? What, why are we removing our logs? So that we can see them for how they really are. Well, I think it also is, is seeing how they are, but it also allows us to serve more freely as well. Yeah, and to serve it's more. But then, but then we have to go and serve and help other people. Yeah. So, one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of times if I'm finding myself being critical of someone else, if I really am honest with myself, I realize I have the same problem. <laughs> yeah, well, one of the reasons why Wayman changed this, he wanted, that he, instead of doing like uh, uh, being and a moat, we go, we always have to look those things up. He's going, no, a log and a, and a splinter is of the same material. So he wanted to tie the, the two together. I thought he did a really good job on this. We never stop being in the splinter business. We're still in the splinter business. We're still filled in a world of people that are blind. And we, and we can't see when we have our own logs, our own impediments. We're still in the splinter business. We are. And we could, we could spend a long time going over, well, what are all the logs that we might, well, let's take quickly. What are some of the logs that we might have in our own lives that prevent us from removing splinters and others, that blind us? Prejudice. Prejudice would be one. What else? Our own inadequacies might be a log, absolutely. Yeah, well, that happens a lot. Well, why? I don't know very much. You know, I wasn't a seventh generation Mormon. <laughs> Holding grudges might be a log. Yeah. Sometimes depression, anxiety, things might be a log that we need to work on so that we're able to serve. Yeah. Now, was it, so we're not saying how the log got there. You, you might have a log genetically that you were born with. Absolutely. Our own life experience, traumatic kind of things. I have a hard time serving and helping because I get worried or I get nervous or I get triggered. Yeah? I would say fear. Well, I think fear is a big log. Not just our own stuff, but maybe some other people. And fear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We bought into the view that somebody else placed on us. Sometimes we are hypocrites because somebody else put a mask on us. We didn't put the mask on. Somebody else said, you're, kind, you're not very smart. Your sister was the cute one, you're the smart one. Or that you're never going to amount to very much because you're not that smart. Help thou my unbelief. Our unbelief can be a, a law that prevents. Well, how am I supposed to help somebody when my own testimony is struggling? Busyness. Oh, oh, how about that one? How about our busyness as a law? Yeah, we're just so busy doing all that kind of stuff, I don't have time to help. Yeah? Little logs. We can accumulate. Mortality is full of logs. And they blind us to being able to help clear up somebody else's issue.
who you're praying for and trying to establish that relationship. Yeah. Because I know when I mess up, I feel so guilty. I didn't have, I thought he was a spirit or someone who didn't care. It probably yeah, it, it, we become aware. That's why in these prayers, I, I think sometimes our lack of prayer might be a log because we lose that connection, we lose that relationship with Him. Okay? So th that's why I said, so, so look at this. The one of the reasons I wanted to pull this piece out, I wanted to tie it to the Lord's Prayer because I think they're, I think they're very much in the same vein. And, and, the, and the, the theme running through that is... Uh, that one day I will be merciful. Help me be merciful to my, as my Father in Heaven is merciful. Help me remove the, anything that prevents me from serving other people. Help me to forgive uh, that I may be forgiven. I mean, this is the same thing over and over again. Um, okay. Fine. okay. And ultimately, he's going to say a good tree cannot make bad fruit, nor a bad tree can make good fruit. All right, one last thing. When you bring your gift to the altar, and remember that your brother and sister has something against you. Oh, wait a minute. At exactly what moment do we bring our gift to the altar? Exactly, first of all, go back to the first century. Exactly at what moment did these people bring their gifts to the altar. They go into the temple to bring their... Oh, no, those are sacrifices. When did they bring their gifts? Are they the same? Yeah. That's the moment. When, how often are you seeing your sacrifices as a gift? When you bring, he could have easily said, and the, and the Greek word backs this up. He didn't say, when you bring your sacrifices to the altar. He said, bring your gifts to the altar. Wow. Because we think of our sacrifice, if I've got a sacrifice, I'm going to sacrifice something, and that's going to be hard for me. Are you thinking about that as a gift? i got to go do this, i got to... When you bring your gift to the altar and they remember that your brother and sister has something against you, leave your gift, your sacrifice there before the altar and first be reconciled to your brother and sister and then go and offer your gift. Now, how about in the modern day? When do we present our gifts at the altar? At what moment? Yes. The sacrament. The sac oh, wait a minute. The sacrament is about remembering him, right? Yeah. Before we get there. Yeah. So so we come with a broken heart, contrite spirit, and then a, and then at what moment do we give a gift? No, the, the deacons are given us the sacrament, we're getting his gift of his blood, his body. We're getting the gift. When do we give the gift back? 
Yeah, in fact, we cut, don't we covenant to kind of do that in our service? Sure. But on a Sunday, when I, when I sat here yesterday, and they were serving the sacrament there, keep in mind, if we go back to DNC 59, the Lord is going to say to them, but remember that on this the Lord's day, thou shalt offer thine oblation. Offerings. How often do we walk into sacrament and go, I'm supposed to offer something today. What am I offering? What am I bringing on this day? What am I hauling over here and putting on the sacrament table in front of these pimply priests? What am I putting up here? What am I bringing in the sacrament meeting that goes there? What's my gift? I don't know if there's a prescribed answer to that, but other than saying, you're supposed to be bringing something, and maybe it's just a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Maybe it's a certain amount of pride. Maybe it's rebelliousness. But are you picturing in the sacrament saying, okay, I'm getting my sacrifice, my offering is a gift, and I'm giving back to God, what? Probably my being. Here, have my being. So that I can walk out of here and serve. Our beams go on. We're, we're trying to burn up the beam. Kind of thing. That makes sense. Okay? Yeah? So, that can't mean our sins are gifts. <laughs> ah, she says that can't mean that our sins are gifts. Like, are we going to place our sins up there? I would love it if my kids would give me all of their sins. Be the <laughs> They're going to bring it to you and then you're going to dump them? <laughs> Uh, give it up. Okay, there you go. I'm thinking. Yeah. I will give away all my sins. To, could we give away our sins? Why would that be a gift? Yes. I'm going to offer me up, but that means so why would. But if I'm going to do that, then I'm going to have to place something on the altar. And I got to give away my sins. I don't mind giving away the sins I sort of don't like. <laughs> what I don't want to give away is the sins I really do like. I I want to go on a diet, but I don't want to give up the donuts. You know what I'm saying? I I, I don't want to give up my favorite stuff. I want to give away the but sacrifice and offerings. I'm going to give away something very. Part, I've, got, I've got to give me away. Yeah. Does it help you a little bit when you say that the idea that we're going to give away something, the, the hardest part, does it help you a little bit that the Savior in Gethsemane says, I'm not sure I'm completely ready to do this. If there's any other way that we can do this, let this cup pass I would, that would be okay, because this is going to be really hard for me to give this up. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. Um, basically, we've all got things we say that we want, but do we want them bad enough to do what's necessary? Because then it becomes a sacrifice. I don't want to sacrifice the things I want most, and yet uh, the Lord 
as, as he said, as uh, Jonah Smith said to the twelve, uh, the Lord will test you and try you and wrench your very heartstrings. Sometimes the thing we're called upon to sacrifice is the things we need. And that, we have a hard time seeing, in that middle of the sacrifice, we have a hard time seeing that as a gift. And yet it is. So, let, let me finish by saying this. I believe that one of the messages of the sermon, and especially of the prayer, is one of sacrificing and, and wanting our beings removed so that we can then serve. So that we are no longer blind and we can help them to see help everybody else to see as soon as we can see. But that means sacrificing things sometimes that we just hold on to our favorite stuff. And that's all. But that's what we're praying for. Help <coughs> give up the stuff that we really want to come to. And see it as a gift. See it as a blessing. Because guess what? You did the same thing for me. Pray that we can take that as we go forward in our life. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.